A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored by Teach Coalition with the election coming up in just another few days. Teach Coalition reminds you, reminds all of us actually, to go ahead and vote. Be a part of that Jewish history and struggle for emancipation and freedom, and go ahead and uh, and write the next chapter by going ahead to vote. Vote early. Not like they used to say in Chicago, vote early, vote often. Don't vote often. That we still do in Israel sometimes, but vote early. That's what's important. Get in your mail-in ballot or go to the polls on Election Day. If you have any questions or need help with your voter plan in New York, New Jersey, Florida, or Pennsylvania, then call or email Teach Coalition's voting expert at 201 937 8442 or email at huttb at teachcoalition.org or go to their website at teachcoalition.org slash vote. Every vote, no matter to which candidate, the idea is that it's a voting block that the religious community votes and their voters, irrespective of who they vote for. And that's why Teach Coalition, the communities, our community's advocate for fair government funding of non-public school schools, non-public schools, is encouraging us to vote. On that topic, um, we're talking about the interwar Jewish politics in Poland, which is very relevant to elections, and it's even more exciting. It was even more exciting than the current elections, Polish uh, Jewish elections in, in, uh, in pre-war Jewish Poland. But it, uh, just to get, give an idea of how important the voting was then, the Agudis Yisrael was uh, a brand new Jewish political party on the scene, when the Second Polish Republic was proclaimed after the Treaty of Versailles, after World War I. And here the Polish country was rising out of Versailles after having not existed for 130, 140, 150 years since the Polish partition, since the partitions of Poland in the, at the end of the 18th century. And it had been swallowed up by the Tsarist Russian Empire and the Austro-Hungarians and the, the uh, Prussian and the Polish kingdom ceased to exist, and now the Second Polish Republic is, is is arising again. And it was a you know tremendous nationalism and Polish pride. And uh, what was happening was the first Polish Sejm, the Polish Parliament, was meeting, 
and uh, and they were going to open up the parliament. Now they didn't even have a chance to vote for the Speaker of Parliament. So that would be one of the first uh, things on the agenda when Parliament opens, when the same opens, S-E-J-M, the same, that's the name of the Parliament in Poland. So who's the Speaker of Parliament? Who runs the proceedings of Parliament until they vote for the Speaker? So the custom is in many Parliaments around the world, I believe till today, is that the most senior member, the oldest member of Parliament, acts as the uh, interim speaker until they vote for the speaker. So as it happens, the old, the oldest member of parliament, the Agudis Yisrael, at that time, the, for, at least in the first elections, uh, you know, kind of dissipated after that, but the idea was to show that they're different than all the other Jewish political parties, than all the other political parties altogether, that they send rabbis, their great Torah leaders, to be their members of parliament. In fact, in Lithuania, independent Lithuania, which was a different country at the time, so the Agudis Yisrael was active there, and the Panavizhorov, Rav Yosef Shleim Kahanaman, was the representative of the Lithuanian parliament. In fact, on the Lithuanian Independence Day, he would fly the Lithuanian flag. And, uh, and he said when he used to fly the Israeli flag in Panavizhorov after the war, he's just continuing his tradition from Lithuania. But that's a different story about the Panavizhorov. In any case, in Poland, it was similar, at least for the first elections of the Aguda. And the first, uh, the first member of, of parliament for the Aguda was one of the oldest senior rabbonim in Poland at the time, Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Perlmutter, one of the great rabbis of Warsaw. He's buried in the rabbi section in the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery when we go, uh, to, uh, to the Warsaw uh, Cemetery. So Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Perlmutter, a very elderly and respected Paisik and rabbi, and he, was in his 80s, and he apparently is the oldest member of parliament. And uh, this was going to be a problem. Here, the Polish Republic is opening its parliament for the first time in 140 years. There's this surge of nationalism, and who's opening the parliament? Not a, an aristocratic family, not a Pole, not even a Catholic, a Orthodox Jew rabbi with a white beard from the minorities in Poland. It was it, it was causing so much tension, and no one knew what to do. Everyone was uncomfortable with it. The Polish nationalists were uncomfortable with it. The Jews were uncomfortable with it. No one knew what to do. So there's a couple of versions of what happened. One version of what happened is that, in fact, the oldest member of parliament was actually a scion of the uh, of an aristocratic family, Prince Radzivill, from one of the nationalist parties, and he was older, just he wasn't able to make it. And uh, he wasn't feeling well, he was an elderly individual. And because of this crisis that Rutsirish Perlmutter was going to open the parliament session, so he ended up uh, feeling better and making it uh, down to Warsaw and opening parliament and problem solved. Uh, Radzivill opened it and not Rutsirish Perlmutter. But the other more exciting version of the story that I personally heard from Professor Shlomo Avineri, um, in a lecture several years ago, so he say, he claims that uh, that what actually happened is that Ertzirish Perlmutter was older than Radzivill, and he was going to be opening up the parliament. And what happened was that the Askonim, the activists of the Aguda, they met with the nationalists, the Polish nationalists, and they struck a deal. They said, hey, we're going to arrange that Ertzirish Perlmutter is going to call in sick the first day of the opening of parliament. So it's going to have to be opened by the second oldest member of parliament, which is this Prince Radzivill. And he'll open the session of parliament. 
So we got you covered. It's all taken care of. All we need in return is that we should have a seat on the finance committee, um, which, you know, will help us get the budgets of what we need for our institutions and our constituency. So, and that's what happened. There were serious problems with their cold and sick. And the Agudis Yisrael set their, their uh, trend of, of being able to know how to make deals, being able to finagle their, the what they need and how they need it and utilizing democracy and, uh, and modern politics in a very professional and an efficient fashion, which uh, is a legacy that continues till today. So the, the, what we're going to speak about today is the background. So you see actually how important voting is. That was the point of that whole story. Um, but, uh, what we, what, uh, we're going to discuss today is how these political parties formed and what were some of the struggles and challenges that were facing uh, the, the various different factions of the uh, Jewish political scene in Poland at that time. But before I get into that, um, it's on the, giving this, uh, this, um, episode on the Rosh Hashivas at Sal's yard site, or Nussensi Finkel, the great Mir Shashiva, who I fondly remember so well. Last year we actually had a double episode in honor of his yard sites. So you probably want to check out um, both of those uh, with some great, fantastic stories, and it was very popular then. And and um, and you, so you know you might want to listen to those. But I, someone who is so above politics, and just to give an entire episode on politics without mentioning the fact that it's his yard site, is I feel it's inappropriate. So I'm just going to mention that it is is uh, Reb Nossi Finkel's yard site today. In fact, um, my colleague and I, Davi Safir. Uh, we're, or have in this week's Mishpacha magazine, which you would definitely want to check out, even if, uh, even if normally you don't, which I don't know why you wouldn't, but this week you should. Uh, there's a two-page column on, about the Rosh Hashiva and, uh, and his family, um, and his background, and we had the privilege of speaking to the Rosh Hashiva's mother, may she live and be well, um, Rebetzin Sarah Finkel, and, uh, who participated. In fact, I interviewed her uh, several years ago, and she told us a story that when they came to Israel, when the Rashiva Zitzal was a teenager, and he um, and Rablazi Yudel asked her, asked his niece, Sarah Finkel, to leave the Rashiva, who was then a in high school, he was a, a teenager in, in Chicago, um, so he asked him to leave him there in Mir Yeshiva. And uh, he called her in to a meeting to ask her to leave her there, and it was Erev Rosh Hashanah. And she said to him, I have to think about it. Let me think about it over Yantif, and I'll get back to you. And on Rosh Hashanah, she's listening to the laning of the Torah. This is what she told us. Listening to the laning of the Torah about the Akedah. But Hashem tells Avram Avinu to bring up Yitzchak as a sacrifice. And she thinks to herself during the laning, she says, Avram Avinu was able to sacrifice his son out of love for Hashem and, uh, and for the future of the Jewish people. And to give that sacrifice that a parent can do for a child because he knew that was the right thing to do because Hashem said so, he said, she said to herself, so I can do that sacrifice as well. I can allow my son to be young son, teenager, to be so far away from me and sacrifice him for Tyra, and to leave him here in Mir Yeshiva. She went over to her uncle, Rebbe after Yantif, and said, I'm, I'm willing to make the sacrifice. And as we say, a cliche, the rest is history. So that's the story I heard from her. But let's move back to politics, because that's also an exciting story. 
What we have here is is the one of the reasons that it's such an important story is because that the long lasting impact the essentially the golden age of Jewish politics was was in interwar uh, Jewish Poland. The Jewish politics didn't really exist before that, and and anything that came after that, this, the Jewish politics in the state of Israel and and uh, any of the Jewish politics that exist in the United States or other countries is all impacted by the uh, political parties that were in policies and and you know methodology of of the of the uh, uh, mechanisms of of the Jewish political parties in Poland during that time. So the the uh, it has an impact till today uh, very much in, in Israel. It's almost a carbon copy of uh, of uh, till today, literally of the um, of the Jewish political parties from before the war in Poland, um, with a lot of the same issues too. By the way, so. Before World War One, there is Jewish politics, and in the, in the olden days, you had the Stadlin of each community who was like some sort of activist or uh, um, wealthy individual who had connections with the aristocracy, with the noblemen, with the parrots, who was able to lobby on behalf of the Jewish community for whatever they needed. But as the modern era progressed and Jews received emancipation, so the Jews received emancipation in the Western Europe, Central Europe, and they start to vote in elections, but there's no Jewish politics. There are Jewish politicians who get elected into the parliament in France and in Germany, England, in England, uh, when Baron Rothschild, uh, excuse me, Baron Rothschild's in France, Lord Rothschild becomes a member of the first Jewish member of the House of Lords. They actually have to change the law in the, in the English, uh, English parliament, the British parliament of allowing, the, of changing the, uh, the language of the oath. Of office to you know it was, it was a strictly a Christian oath, and here in honor of Lord Rothschild, they, and there was debates in the British Parliament uh, about if they could change this oath, um, and they did so. So you had Jewish politicians in in all the countries that allowed uh, Jewish emancip- emancipation, but you didn't have Jewish politics. That only comes later because in in Western Europe, in Central Europe, the Jewish communities were so small and insignificant relative to the general population that it just you know wouldn't have been even possible it was only when the Jews in eastern europe receive emancipation following world war 1 that all of a sudden jewish politics uh, hits the scene with full force because here there's these huge demographics of massive jewish populations that form they already formed clandestine in a clandestine fashion under tsarist russia the jewish political parties existed but there was no voting there was no parliament until after uh, World War One. In fact, it's a, a great irony of history is that the, uh, I mentioned this in the, in the, in the Tisha B'Av episode about the Evsexia and the destruct, destruction of Jewish life that they perpetrated in Russia. But what is a, a, a fascinating irony of history is that there's, on, on the other hand, besides for all the destruction, the Evsexia was actually the first Jewish politics. Uh, it was a Hebrew Yev, Yevri, a Jewish section of the Communist Party. In other words, it's a completely Jewish political entity. And it was from the government's perspective to take care of the Jewish interests, the Jewish needs. The, the Jewish interests and Jewish needs from the government's perspective was to destroy Jewish cultural, political, and religious life, right? So, you know, it's not like we look at them very fondly of history. But the fact of the matter is, is that they are, the Evsexia are, have a distinct... Uh, honor of being the first real Jewish politics in Jewish history since the, uh, I guess, the second Beis HaMikdash. But in any event, what, what that's in Russia. But the, what it really takes off is in the Second Polish Republic. Um, 
The Second Polish Republic was not exactly a democracy. The first couple of years, it was a quasi-democracy. After the Pilsudski Revolution, it was pretty much not a democracy. But there was voting. Um, there was voting and there was officially minorities' rights that was required by the Treaty of Versailles that the Polish government begrudgingly gave, uh, at times more, at times less, to their different minorities, the Jews, Ukrainians, Germans, other minorities that lived in Poland at the time. And there's three levels of voting. There's the, as far as the Jews are concerned, there's the elections for the kahal. That's internal Jewish voting. Every Jewish community, mid-sized and, and even small, especially the large Jewish city, the cities, they had a, a kahal that was recognized by the government that took care of all internal Jewish affairs, institutions, education, um, the rabbinate, uh, um, the cemeteries, the mikvahs, the, the, all the stuff like that. And um, that's an internal Jewish vote, meaning all the parties that are running are Jewish political parties, and that's, that's to run Jewish affairs. That's the kahal. Then you have the iriya, we say in, in Israel, the municipal, municipal, municipal elections for the city council. And that, of course, was a general election. Jews and Poles, um, all, all the different parties ran. And then you had the national elections for the same. Um, now, what, what made, to make it even more exciting is that the Polish Jews very often split their vote. They Sometimes you'd have a guy, someone who voted in the Kahal elections, he'd vote for the Agudas Yisrael because he wanted traditional Jewish institutions in the Kahal. He, and, uh, but he would vote for the Bund, the y- Yiddishist socialists, in the Iria elections, in the, the municipal elections, because he wanted someone who was going to combat anti-Semitism and help the Jewish factory workers in the local textile uh, industry or something like that. And in the national elections, he might vote for either a Polish, maybe he'll even vote for a Polish non-Jewish party, or maybe he'd vote for the Zionists, uh, because he, as an expression of Jewish nationalism, you know, so, sometimes they would vote for three different parties at the three different levels. Another, uh, uh, another interesting uh, in a twist. So who are these different parties? You have, like I said, the, um, like many, many, many Jews would vote for Polish, Polish parties. Many Jews were assimilated at that time. Polish was the first language in many Jewish homes by this time. Um, so many would vote for Polish parties. Had no qualms about that. Um, and many, many, maybe even the majority of, uh, of, uh, of Polish Jews did not vote altogether. You have to remember that this is the first time that they have emancipation. This is the first time that they have voting rights, and they haven't reached political maturity. And there's this tremendous movement of, amongst all the Jewish parties, the Bund, the Zionists, the Aguda, all the parties to encourage Jews to vote, to get out there and vote. And, and you have these Yiddish signs from that time about that there's low voter turnout uh, in, in the Jewish community, and we have to get more out there and vote, and it's very important that our voices are heard and this is how we can make an impact. Literally the same thing that we have uh, today. And, and, uh, they, and uh, so you had that challenge as well. But from the minority in the middle who weren't voting for the Polish parties, who were, not, who were voting, they weren't from the non-voters. So they voted for the various different Jewish parties. They had the Bund, which were socialists, and they were uh, fighting for workers' rights, and they were fighting to settle, to maintain a presence in Poland. And Poland is their home country and they're going to fight anti-Semitism, they're going to create a better and more equal Poland through socialism. They were very closely affiliated with the Polish socialists. They always went with the leftist parties in uh, in uh, together with the Polish leftist parties in the parliament and the elections. And they, But they maintained Jewish identity through Yiddish culture, 
and through fighting anti-Semitism and stuff like that. You had an even more populist party, the Folks Party, which was the vision of the famous Jewish historian Shimon Dubnov, who, um, who decided that we need, it's not about socialism, Jewish autonomy. Jewish autonomy is that we have our own culture, we have our own language, we have our own writing, our own literature, um, secular Jewish culture, but it's not it's without any socialist agenda. And of course, it's wherever country we live, it's in the diaspora, Jewish nationalism is Jewish autonomy and Jewish culture, not their own territory. And then you had another party like the Poaletzion Small, the leftist Poaletzion, which the famous Jewish historian Dr. Emanuel Ringelblum was one of the leaders of that party. And they said, Jews need a territory in order for socialists, and he was, they were actually even more socialists, they were basically Marxist, openly Marxist, um, to create Marxist ideals, we can't be just part of the internationalist communist uh, uh, movement. We have to have our own distinctive Jewish identity. And again, they're very promoting Yiddish culture, Yiddish secular culture, the Yiddish language, the common man, the the uh, the forgotten man at the bottom of the socioeconomic rungs of, of Jewish society. And um, and we also need a territory. Where does that territory have to be? Anywhere. Could be Palestine. It could be anywhere else. As long as we have a territory that keeps us as a nationalist entity, without any of the nationalist romantic sentiment, but just as a technicality that it's that it makes it easier to run. So Ringelblum and others like that were associated with this party. So you have those parties on the left. Then you had the various uh, Zionist parties. Um, unlike the early years of the State of Israel and the pre-state and the mandate, the British Mandate era, where the Dominant uh, Zionist parties in Israel were the on the left, the labor Zionist Ben Gurion. But in Poland, it was not like that. The main, the general Zionist party was the largest Zionist party. Was the was the was centrist. Um, you had you had the revisionists. You had the Jabotinsky Zionists on the right. You had the labor Zionists on the left. You had the Mizrahi, the religious Zionists also. But the main, the largest uh, dominant uh, J- Jewish Zionist party was Yitzchak Greenbaum's. General Zionists, which were centrist, they were middle class and uh, very often Polish speakers at home, um, and their their vision was to get out of Poland and and then and get to Palestine, which Greenbaum himself did um, in the 1930s uh, after he had served in the Polish Parliament uh, for quite a few years. So, and Yitzhak Greenbaum was a you know a uh, very vocal opponent of the Agudas Yisrael, and he and the Aguda leaders clashed. And one of the great ironies, uh, again, of history is is that they were tremendous political foes. And it got very personal also. And Greenbaum and the Agoda political leaders, people like Itchemeyer Levine, who was the Gary Rebbe's son-in-law. The Gary Rebbe was, of course, the overall leader of the Polish uh, Agoda. And so they would, you know, go at it in the Polish same. They're both representatives of their respective parties in the parliament. And they would yell at each other in Polish, in the Polish parliament, 20 years later, they were yelling at each other in Hebrew in the Israeli Knesset. And meanwhile, both of their first languages was Yiddish. And they, uh, you know, they never really quite got along, even though Greenbaum wasn't as powerful in, in, in the state of Israel as he was in Poland, because the general Zionists were a very, like I said, a much smaller party when it came to the Knesset, when it came to Israel. But um, so that's the Zionist parties. And then you have, interestingly enough, the Bund and the Zionists both were founded in 1897. Um, the, the Zionist, of course, in the Basel in Switzerland, Theodor Herzl, the first uh, uh, Zionist Congress, uh, Congress in, 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 in it was uh, for, in 1897, and um, 
but the, Zion, the Congress might have been in 1898. I have to double check that, but it was called, it was founded uh, in, in 1897. The Bund was founded the same year. And secretly, it was in Russia, it was in Vilna, actually, and it was an illegal organization. They, he had uh, the Bund leaders at that time separated from the Bolsheviks, from the Lenin, Lenin's, uh, which was also illegal at the time, and, uh, and they made their own Jewish socialist uh, party. Um, so they both started to form the same year. Whereas Algoris Yisrael comes late in the game. They come much later. Uh, they, they are only founded somewhat in 1912 by, by, uh, German Jews in Frankfurt that it only comes to Poland in 1916. Again, imported by German Jewish rabbis, Rabbi Dr. Pinchas Khan, Rabbi Dr. Emanuel Karabach, who they meet with the Ger Rebbe and others in Warsaw in the 1916 during World War One, during the German occupation. Um, they form the Agudas Yisrael, which is another story. I'm not going to get into that. So it forms then, and it rises. The Ger Rebbe, of course, takes over. And um, and then there's internal struggles in the Agudas Yisrael, because not all of the religious Jewish factions in Poland are so open to the idea that there should be a religious uh, political party. And even though the Agudas says, you know, we're not really a political party, and they were only forced to go into politics because of the circumstances of the time, and they bemoaned the circumstances of the time, and really, we're about religion, we're not about politics, and uh, we just have to protect ourselves. In fact, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, um, more than a half a century before Richard Nixon came along and spoke about his silent majority, the Agudis Yisrael was using the same language. They went around during the election campaigns and said, we represent the silent majority of Polish Jewry. We, uh, the, you know, they're, they're, they're the Bund and the Zionists claim to represent uh, the needs of, of, of Polish Jews. Really, most Polish Jews are traditional still, um, which was not exactly the case, um, and, uh, and uh, we represent them. What's interesting is, though, is that even though they may not have, have represented the majority, but in the Kahal elections, they actually won uh, in many, many times, in hundreds of, of towns. Um, which is fascinating because the, the seemingly the majority was already non-traditional, but uh, very often um, assimilated Jewish uh, Polish Jews would not vote in Kahal elections. They no longer saw themselves as part of the Jewish community. Very often the Bund would go ahead and boycott the Kahal elections for whatever reason they were angry about. And you know, the Bund was very often making hafganot and demonstrations about workers' rights and against this and against that, and very often against other parties. They were anti-Zionist, they were anti-religious, and, and, uh, they, you know, they, they also combated anti-Semitism. They actually formed Jewish self-defense, uh, fighting units, uh, to, 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 to fight again. If, if a, if a traditional looking Jew, a Hasidic looking Jew with a beard was picked on by Polish anti-Semites in the streets of Warsaw and beaten up, then you might have a group of young Bundists who were anti-religious, but they were more important to them was to combat anti-Semitism. And they would go ahead, they would be armed and they would actually fight back. And they would uh, defend, defend. Uh, so, so it's a complicated relationship that the Bund has with uh, with their fellow Jewish uh, parties. But um, so, so, uh, but in the Kahal elections, very often the Agoda wins. Uh, the the across Poland and, and all the major cities in Lodz and in in Krakow and uh, in Warsaw for a period of time and in Radom and Kelts and many cities. And um, in, in Warsaw, actually, the last elections before. Before the war, the Kahal was controlled by the Bund, but in, in, in other cities too, in Piotrkov. In, but, um, but the Aguda did have the largest political, not a majority, but the largest party, enough to make the Reich HaKahal an Agudist very often, and, uh, and, uh, and, the, and a lot of their representatives on 
on the um, on the Kahal Council, which also had an effect in the post-war because the you know, Agudis Israel, both in America and in Israel, in the 1950s, was a you know tiny minority struggling for survival. Whereas in Poland, they had actually dominated the Kahal boards in in many cities, so it was a very different situation. In any event, the the um, what happens is is that uh, is that the that many many orthodox ultra orthodox factions are opposed to the Aguda, the Babava Rebbe and Galicia especially. Very little Aguda presence in Galicia. Belzer Rebbe and a lot of other Hasidic uh, Rebbe's they oppose the Aguda. They do not allow their participants. There was also struggles between the Ger and uh, and Alexander for a period of time, which affected the Aguda voting uh, trends in in in, in Poland and Congress Poland. And um, and the and and so they had that struggles. They had internal struggles within the Aguda Yisrael itself. You had a organization that associated with Aguda Yisrael, but was formed within the Aguda as somewhat a different organization. I mentioned it in passing in other episodes. The Poyale Aguda Yisrael, the workers, uh, socialists, uh, religious, and they they said we're socialists and socialist ideals, but our socialist ideals come from the Torah. And therefore, part of Agudis Yisrael. And they struggled for workers' rights, for instance. And this came to a clash within the Aguda. Fascinating story. Is what happens is, is that the Pale Agudis Yisrael is representing the Jewish workers, laborers, factory workers. And there's this very strict law that's maintained in Poland during that time called the, the that the, that, the, that they, uh, there were all stores, factories, everything, industry was required to be closed on Sunday. Sunday was closed. Catholic, very Catholic, very religious country. Sunday, everything has to be closed. So you have a situation where everyone has to be open on Shabbos, um, and they want all their workers to come on Shabbos because you can't be closed two days a week. That would be bad for business. So you had a very interesting situation. We love to talk about how in the United States, every everyone ended up, uh, all the immigrants uh, abandoned Shabbos because their employer said, if you don't come show up on Saturday, then don't come on Monday. Well, the exact same thing was happening in Poland. And, uh, and, the, and the, the, the Jewish factory workers, if they had Polish employers, they were told, if you don't come on, show up on Saturday, don't come on Monday. So what was the solution? There were plenty of wealthy religious Jews, rich Hasidim, who, had, who owned factories. And they, the Jewish laborers wanted to get hired by them. This way they would be understanding and allow them to take off on Shabbos. Well, it wasn't so simple, because these wealthy factory owners also had to keep their factories open on Shabbos, because they had to keep closed on Sunday, they were required to close their factories on Sunday, and they couldn't afford to be closed twice a week. So they had different prominent and prestigious rabbis in Poland who would sign off a very, you know, you know, uh, business transaction that the Polish foreman of the Hasidic-owned factory, the Polish foreman would be the owner, as it were, of the factory on Shabbos, and 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 not the 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 religious Jew, and the religious Jew would not get the profits that were made on Shabbos, and this was a halachic arrangement that was created for these factory owners, and this way they were able to keep their factories open on Shabbos. The only problem is that if you're doing that arrangement, you have to have Polish workers, not Jewish workers, because they had to have them be able to work on Shabbos. So the religious factory owners were not able to hire, didn't want, were not, were not able to hire uh, Jewish workers. And the Pele Agudas Yisrael was lobbying that they should hire Jewish workers. Now, who was the heads of the Agudas Yisrael at that time? The wealthy industrialists and the rabbis. 
And the wealthy industrialists and the rabbis were the ones who were writing this contract to enable these factories to open on Shabbos. So that, that ended up having a lot of tension, a lot of kind of bitter tension, that, that it was, you know, a class tension, in a, almost in a Marxist way, that, uh, that, the, uh, that, that the laborers weren't able to get hired by Jewish owners because of this arrangement that they needed to be able to stay open on Shabbos. There's lots of uh, tension like that. In 1922 elections, the... The uh, the Jewish organized by Yitzchak Greenbaum of the General Zionists, he organized the Minority Block. The Minorities Block tried to get all the Jewish parties, political parties involved, and all the other minority parties in Poland, the Ukrainian, German, other minority parties involved. That we're going to have a Minorities Block to fight for minorities' rights in the Polish Parliament, and that was a successful election, probably the biggest success that the Aguda had. They got six members into the lower house of parliament and three into the senate and uh, big great Jew, uh, Agoda activists like Moshe Deutscher and Usher Mendelssohn became senators and others and then you had their representatives in the you know activists mainly from Warsaw and Lodz um, Elio Kirschbrunn and a couple of rabbis the Reisherov Rabaron Levin was was a member of parliament and of course famously Rameir Shapiro Rameir Shapiro who was the Piotr cover of at the time and before he was in Lublin he um Possibly he was still in Sanok. I don't even know if he was in Piotrkov. I think he was still in Sanok. And, uh, uh, and, uh, and Romero Shapiro became a member of parliament, the Polish parliament, which is a fascinating aspect of his life as well. And, uh, and that, and that lasts a few years. The next elections, Greenbaum is still pushing the minorities block, but this time there's the Pilsudski revolution, Josef Pilsudski. A, there's a whole lot of internal politics and problems with the Polish economy and lots of other things going on. And Yosef Pil- Pilsudski, who was a nationalist, who was a rightist, and uh, kind of a dictator, he takes over the Polish government. The, the, the San- Sanatia, that's what it was called. And they, that's almost the revolution that basically destroys Polish democracy. There's still elections, there's still political parties, but, um, but it's basically a dictatorship of Pilsudski. And Pilsudski, had a fondness for the Jews, and the Aguda makes a decision, a very pragmatic way, to align themselves with him. And so you have the, of course, the socialist parties like the Bund, they went with the left. The general Zionists, they stayed in the minority bloc, and they kind of were also in the, either in the middle or on the left. And the Aguda, the religious, they go with the right, they go with the nationalists, and it paid off for them. They went, it's not the first time in history that it happened that the, that the religious went with the right nationalists. But what happens is, is that in 1935, Pilsudski dies. And the right nationalists after Pilsudski were very anti-Semitic and things got pretty bad for Polish Jewry and Jewish politics. Jewish politics in general was pretty much a, a failure during, they, they never really achieved their goals, any of the Jewish political parties in uh, interwar Poland. It was a difficult time in general for uh, Polish Jewry and it was very hard for politicians to be able to achieve uh, their goals almost impossible, but it just matured them on the road of, of Jewish politics. But what happens is is that after Pilsudski's death, the, the good times were over. And uh, Pilsudski himself ha- had been relatively good to Jews and good for the Aguda. Um, but after his passing, the nationalists who took over were rightist, nationalists, anti-Semitic. It was a terrible time. There's economic boycott for Polish Jewry. So the Bund relationship with the socialists on the left did bring results, especially during the Holocaust. They maintained the relationship with them, with the Polish underground, with the, the socialists on the left. Um, but the 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 attempt to to get along on the right only worked as long as uh, Pilsudski was alive. After that, 
you know, in the long term, to be on the side of the rightist nationalists, uh, it just uh, ended up being anti-Semites. Uh, uh, so that was um, that didn't pay off uh, in the long run. Um, so the the uh, the the story of Jewish politics at that time is something that continues to impact the Jewish world today. And uh, Jewish voting was important in Poland during that time. Every elections, they tried to get everyone to go out to vote. So that's a, a story that's uh, very relevant for our time. So this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. Uh, you can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, uh, tours, trips, sponsorships, lectures, virtual tours. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.